Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive Podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners. Thank you as always, wonderful listener for joining us. Now, if you've heard some of the podcasts that we have been producing as part of our Employee Experience Revolution campaign and that we've released towards the beginning of 2024, you'll be familiar with a couple of the topics that came out around storytelling. And this I find as a marketer, I find this quite a fascinating subject. And so today's podcast is all going to be around storytelling and the impact of storytelling in HR. It's not just going to be me telling one big story, though. I need, obviously, some uh, interesting people, much more interesting than myself, to chew the fat over on this. And to do that, first and foremost, I've got my co-host who's making her debut. It's Gemma Ryle from Lace. Gem, how are you doing? Hello. Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening. Oh, oh you're taking my catchphrase mm. as well. I love it. I love it. And we've also got uh, Karen Eber. Now, Karen is an author. She's written a book called The Perfect Story. She's also, in her previous working uh, life, she's uh, she's worked for GE as a global culture and exec development leader. So, Karen, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good day to everyone. Yeah, really, really excited to get into this. Really, really excited to talk about storytelling and HR. But before we do that, the new tradition, which I invented at the beginning of this year as my New Year's resolution, we call ourselves a fundamentally different HR consultancy. And I place the emphasis on fun. And so today's fundamentally different question is that it's been really cold in the UK. Now, I'm sure certainly in parts of the US, it's a lot colder. And uh, you can tell our listeners in a second where you're from and whether minus two or minus three degrees is cold, but it's pretty cold for us Londoners. And so the question I'm going to ask you, and then I'm going to get Gemma to also answer is, so it's really, really cold. And I'm going to give you three different options to warm yourself up. Now, option number one is you can run up and down the stairs of either an office building that you work in or your own building for one hour to get warm. Option number two is you have to wear the last 10 items that you've worn every single day uh, all at once to keep going. Option number three is you can just have a nice warm bath in soup. So, Karen, option number one, run up and down stairs for an hour. Option number two, wear the last 10 garments or have a bath in soup. What are you going for? They're all pretty undesirable. I'm trying to think of the last 10 garments that I had and if I would even be able to fit them on top of each other and put my arms down. So I think I'm going to have to go with the stairs. Hey, lovely, lovely, lovely. And if you're somebody like me that's got a Fitbit, then uh, you get the benefit of that too. Gemma? I too would choose the stairs. The reason being, I heard once, I think it was a cold water swimmer that said it's better to warm your body from the inside out rather than the outside in. So if you're cold, running up and down the stairs would be a better way of generating your body. Certainly a lot more palatable than soup. Although the benefit of the soup is that you do also then get a meal as well as keeping warm. So, hey, I'm just going to put that one out there. And what's your choice? 
Yeah, I'm worried about your hygiene options there. Yeah, well, I just, I think the idea of soup is quite humorous. So that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to go for. A nice bath of soup. It sounded so nice until you said the word soup. And then it was like, (laughs) oh, no. (laughs) Definitely not. Definitely not. Right, Karen, we're going to talk storytelling. But before we need need to do that, we need you to tell your own story, which is your background. So for our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? I've obviously given a little bit of an insight, but you can put a lot more color into it. Sure. I like to describe it as sitting on both sides of the desk. I had a 20-year career in corporate working in companies like General Electric and Deloitte, like you mentioned, where I was at a GE. I was a head of culture in a business of 90,000 employees in 150 countries. And so I was always grappling with, like, how do you touch each person and have them think about what's important to them and and what behaviors that they want to shape. And so after 20 years of helping companies think about how they build their leaders and teams and embrace storytelling, I opened my company, Eber Leadership Group, which does exactly that. We help companies build leaders, teams, and culture, often one story at a time. I did a talk that ended up on TED.com and took off, and that was on storytelling, what's happening in your brain, and that led to the book. The perfect story. And so, a good portion of what I spend time on and my company spends time on today is how are you leveraging storytelling to be a memorable, effective communicator? Let's talk about the perfect story a little bit because I'd love to get just a little bit of a one minute, two minute on why you decided to write it and the motivation behind it as well. And then I'm going to get fellow co host to, uh, I'll give you the first question after that, then, Jen. I believe anybody can learn to be a great storyteller and it's also not enough to tell a story. I hate this advice of tell a story or when people say we're wired for stories, we're hardwired for stories because we're not. That implies that any story that you tell is compelling and meaningful and interesting. And we've just all sat through so many boring stories that didn't feel like they were meant for us at all or that we needed to be there. And so I wrote the perfect story to help people recognize the way you tell a story makes a difference in the experience. And there are things that happen in the brain that we can lean into and harness when telling a story. They become considerations that can impact that experience. And so the book grounds you in that science and takes you through the process of figuring out the best story you can tell every time. In that, what I struggle with is knowing the right time to introduce a story, because sometimes it just feels like you kind of bring it out of nowhere and it doesn't feel right. How do you do that? How do you make sure that it's not just telling the compelling, the perfect story, but knowing how to introduce that into the conversation? My favorite moments are when you pull a story out of nowhere and people are unexpecting, you know, you you surprise them with the unexpected because it is the unexpected that is perhaps the greatest attention grabber. What happens, I think, in particularly in business settings is we feel a little reluctant to share stories in general, but especially if no one around us is doing it. And so to then interrupt a discussion and contribute a story that is just feeling like it came out of nowhere can feel really odd, but it can be the very thing that's going to help shift the energy or create the mindset that's needed. I think the best time to tell a story is anytime. The key for a great story is that you're connecting it to your audience and making it relevant for the topic. And so that's what you want to be listening for when you hit that inspiration. You want to be able to take that idea, take that story and make sure the audience you're telling it to understands why and they get something from it. But most often we don't tell enough stories. We can 
can be leading and demonstrating what great communication looks like by telling them unexpectedly far more often. Yeah. If we think about in a HR context, the word empathy is such an important thing. And being able to tell stories that show that you've actively listened to a scenario and then you're turning it into a story in which you can relate to that, relate to the conversation that's taking place, I think is really, really important. If we look at that from a HR lens, and you and I, Karen, obviously, before we uh, hit the record button, we spoke, well, just before Christmas, as we're recording in January. So just before Christmas, we had a quick chat around HR people, the fact that they're constantly dealing with change. And so can I just get some thoughts from you around the importance of telling stories from a communications point of view in such a changing landscape? If you think about the landscape that we're in at the moment, particularly, you know, there's so much uncertainty, there's geopolitical problems, we've got, you've got a cost of living crisis and the importance of being able to tell stories to get across your communications approaches. I think it's fundamental, isn't it? It is. And there's a, a science aspect to it and a general aspect. So part of the reason it can be so compelling to use stories is exactly that empathy. Because when someone's sharing a story, the people that are experiencing the story feel empathy towards the storyteller when it is being told in a genuine way. And it feels like the person is being vulnerable. And I don't mean they're sharing their most private details, but they are having the courage to share a story. We respond to that vulnerability vulnerability. It's just like you see a picture of puppies and you can't help but think like, oh, we just naturally respond to vulnerability. So as someone sharing a story, we feel empathy towards them. That empathy creates a release of oxytocin and dopamine in our brain. And this can't be commanded. It can't be fabricated. It's a true response to, I feel like this person is sharing something with me that makes me feel empathy towards them, but it also is starting to increase my trust towards them. It's almost this signal to the brain of this person feels safe to be around. And this is why when we have offsites and we get the chance to talk to people in a more relaxed way and we learn about them, we come away feeling that bond. It's because we've experienced these neurochemical shifts from having these stories, learning more about each other as people. So just the very act of someone in HR or a leader sharing a genuine story, it's going to increase the trust that people feel, which is so key in these moments where there are so many turbulent changes. The story is also going to help expand their thinking and potentially shift energy. So mm. the story can be such a great way to help people recognize why we can't stay where we are, or to the point you made earlier, help people feel seen. You know, we're struggling with record burnout and so many well-being challenges. Stories can help people feel like I'm understood and I belong and I have value. They can help create a picture of hope and what's happening. To me, this isn't a soft skill. It's a core communication skill that people can use to help just manage employees and, and navigate them through work to be in a better place. Can I just ask one question? You mentioned there about telling stories when you go to offsites and things, and it just popped into my head. So a little bit of a a slightly different track. When it comes to hybrid work, hybrid work versus that in-person work and that collaboration type stuff, how much easier is it to be able to 
be a storyteller when you're not sort of face to face and interacting with that person and their reactions and things like that? Because is it easier? Is it more difficult? What's your kind of take on that kind of view that telling stories via the medium where we're recording now, you're in the US, Gemma's at home, I'm in the office, and you guys are 2D people. And as opposed to if we're having this conversation right now in person, how much more difficult is it to be able to get across that communication, that storytelling approach? I'd say it's less difficulty and more a different experience. When everyone is together in the same place, you can have, you can experience a feeling in the room. You have had these team retreats where the room is just vibing and everyone has there. You feel this shared collective energy that can still happen virtually, but it just takes a little bit more work because I am in my home and there are people around me and pets and lawn care and all of these things that are adding distractions that when you're in a room together, you can minimize. And so, so much of it comes down to the culture you're establishing. You know, if people expect that you care. And that you are going to be communicating information that's helpful, that you are trusting, that they're not cynical about you. It's easier to really focus and pay attention because I want to hear what you have to say. If I feel like I don't quite trust you, I don't really know, I'm probably going to open another window and start typing and, and multitasking and not listening as much. And so it's harder to create that shared feeling. From the delivery standpoint, it can be done. You can create that same emotional shift and feeling. It just comes down to the attention of the audience. And that can vary so much in a hybrid environment. And that's not to say I am anti-hybrid. I am very much pro-hybrid environment, but it requires good meeting hygiene and consistency so people know what to expect from you. So looking at that in an HR context, can you give us some thoughts about how you go about building stories to get that point across, no matter what the medium is? First thing is Every time you tell a story, it's always going to begin with the audience. You want to get really clear on who are you telling this to. And so in HR, you can generalize that you have the same audience every time. But when you're in front of a group, there's something that they share. There's some reason why they're together. And so you want to tweak your story for that group. And I think of it like if a family member an extended family member asks you about what you do for a living, you give a really generalized watered down answer because they don't know, you know, Aunt Irene has no idea what you do. And so you're, you're explaining it the same way you might explain it to a five-year-old. But if you're at a networking event and someone asks you about your background, you're going to explain it just like your colleagues and peers, and you're going to get into all the details. And that's because you're naturally making this decision of what does this person know and what's going to be easiest for them to understand. Same exact thing when you're telling a story. So you want to think about who am I talking to and what do they share in common? What are those common professional experiences that they have? What are those personal experiences? So much so that you can almost picture if you were sitting across from one person in this group, who is that? Because when you're telling your story, you want the people to feel like you are talking directly to them. From there, you want to think about what do you want them to experience internally? What do you want them to know or do as a result of your story? What do you want them to think or feel? Because the point of sharing these things is to get some type of outcome. So you want to write out one or two sentences for this of what you want your audience to know, think, feel, or do. And then you want to think about what is their mindset today? 
and what might be an obstacle. So if you're telling a story about change transformation, you want to think about who is this audience, right? What are their, what are their frustrations that they're experiencing? What might be those things, those obstacles that are hard to shift their mindset and get really clear on that? Because then as you start to pick an idea and build out a structure, you can put things in there to make sure it's going to be meaningful for that audience. That's the secret. Stories start with the audience, not with the idea. We think sometimes like, well, there must be five stories we have to be able to tell as HR professionals. And that's not true. I was working with a CEO at the beginning of COVID and like everybody, it was a in-person culture. They had not worked hybrid. So when the mandates came where people were then dispersed and working remotely for the first time ever, he knew I want to be able to be communicating with the team every week. I want everyone in the company to have this connection. But by the third week, he was out of stories because, you know, the five stories you need to tell aren't going to carry you through. And what he really needed were stories on trust and hope and understanding. And so I don't prescribe to this idea that there are specific stories you have to tell. I prefer for people to get clear on your audience, get clear on the outcomes, and then we can work the process through to pick a story that will help you do that and structure it to make it be meaningful. And when we think about stories, stories are meant to be retold. So what's the risk that they evolve as as they get retold? And how do you form the perfect story to make sure that as it evolves, it evolves in the same direction that you meant it to? I don't think there's a concern if it evolves. It's just like a composer writes a piece of music and they have an idea for how it should be played and an expression of it. But pick any rock star, right? But then someone else does a cover version of it and they evolve it. And it's the same song, but it's different and it's better in some ways. And it's interesting. And storytelling is meant to evolve. Every time someone tells a story, it's going to be personal. Even if you're telling someone else's story, you are bringing your perspective to it and a reason why you are telling it. And that should be clear each time because you and I would each tell a story differently. And so I think it's okay if it evolves. The pieces that you don't want to evolve are the who you're telling it to and what you want that outcome to be. But it's okay if pieces of it change because each person should make it their own. And is there then an, an optimal length that a story should be? Is it audience dependent or or is there a, a, this golden timeline that you have that you hold people's attention for? Yes and no. There is a point where attention will fade. It has changed quite a bit in the pandemic, but part of the reason attention fades is because our brains make this split second decision at a subconscious level of, is this worth my attention or isn't it? So when we drift off in meetings because someone's going row by row through data and we start thinking about what we're going to do over this weekend or on holiday, it's because our brain has said, this is not worth the attention. I'm going to go save some calories. Winning story is constructed well, meaning it's putting in things that are going to build tension. It's going to be putting in unexpected vivid details and events. I'm going to be there. I want to hear it. And in some cases, that could be a 15-minute story. Your average person isn't telling that. It could be two or three minutes. It's not the length. It's how it's constructed and how meaningful it is for the audience. I think that's absolutely fascinating the way you describe that. It's, yeah, 
the audience, putting the audience first. That's one of the things that's resonating with me at the moment. Talking about that, obviously, for our listeners that we've got today, you, you mentioned about how to go about constructing, building those stories in your book. So it would be remiss of me not to ask you to give a few examples, a few of those stories yourself that you can tell, that you talk about in the book, about how do you go about building these stories? You have a few really interesting examples. Is there any you could share with us? Which one do you want to hear? Oh, there's a variety. I'm trying to remember. Is there, there's a neuroscience piece, I think. The one about the Clydesdale and the puppy? Yes. Okay. So in the US, the Super Bowl in January, February is always a very big marketing opportunity for companies where to be able to put a commercial spot on is several million US um, because it's a coveted time slot because so many people are watching and companies get very creative. They've made this huge investment. So they put on these really delightful commercials. In 2015, the brewing company Budweiser put on a commercial where a puppy runs across a field into a barn and stops in front of a stall where there's a Clydesdale and the Clydesdale bends down and rubs noses with the puppy and you can tell they're immediately these friends where you see them playing in the field together and having fun the owner of the barn picks up the puppy and carries it back across to its home next door where you see the sign puppies for sale little foreshadowing of what's to come and this puppy keeps breaking free of its home and getting in to play with the Clydesdale except one day it ends up being put in the backseat of a car because it's been sold and the puppy gets into the back window and it's doing what puppies do it's crying and pawing at the window and the Clydesdale see what's, sees what's happening and gets very upset and agitated and starts chasing the car and other Clydesdales start chasing the car. And now we've got this thunderous chase going and they surround the car, bringing it to a halt. And the puppy is released and the, you see the final shot of the Clydesdales and the puppies running back up the dirt road together. And the sign comes on that says best buds. And this was the favorite commercial. This was like such a feel good commercial that everybody loved. You can find it online if you're interested. I think it is called best buds. It even was nominated for a Emmy television award. But what's really interesting about this commercial is it was a failure. What happens when you see the puppy run in front of the Clydesdale stall door and the Clydesdale bends down is your brain says, oh, I know what's going to happen. They're friends. They're going to get separated. They have to get back together. It's a feel good story. It's an excellent like bedtime story for kids, but there wasn't enough unexpected things in there or tension in there for it to work. And what happens is it did not result in the most wanted outcome for a Super Bowl commercial, which was sales. Mm -hmm. There's ways to actually measure when there is oxytocin that is being released, when someone is having this response to something and they are fully immersed. And what happened in this commercial is they did studies and while people said, this is my favorite, I love this commercial, it was so feel good, it was wonderful. The studies found that their brains did not. In fact, they predicted that the commercial was a failure before Budweiser even did. And it illustrates this point of it isn't enough to tell a story. We may like something, but it's not doing what we want it to do. The way you tell it is going to make a difference in the experience. And so that story was entertaining, but it wasn't putting enough of the right things in to get to the outcome that they wanted. Can I get you to do just one more? Is that okay? Yeah. 
So the one that I thought was interesting, because there's lots of companies, in fact, lots of friends that I speak to. And going back to your point, when you talk to family members or what do you do? And I say, I work, I'm a marketing director for a HR consultancy. And that's kind of when I stop. And lots of my friends, I've had this conversation in the pub before where we've said, well, the company that we work for is a little bit boring. So my company is not boring, by the way. I'm just talking about people that say I work in insurance or I work in finance or I work for this. I work for a, an entity. How can we turn what we are doing into an exciting story? So I'm sure there are people that are probably listening into this saying, well, it's all very well if you work for Lego or if you work for Coca-Cola or if you work for Budweiser to be able to create interesting stories. But there's an example that you give, obviously, about how to turn, I think, is it tenant? Can you give just elaborate on that for a minute for our listeners? Tenant is an industrial floor cleaning company. They often market their products and sell them to schools and big institutions where you have to be able to clean large building at scale. And cleaning products are not sexy to market. They're not the thing that are, you know, providing the creative campaigns. What they decided to do was launch a contest for the unsung heroes in schools, the custodians and janitors who are keeping the school safe and clean and allowing all the teachers and students and administrators to be able to have a wonderful experience. So Tenant opened up this competition where administrators would nominate the custodians or janitors from their school. They had to write an essay about what they contributed to the school, and they then chose a winner. Winning school and janitor both got money. And the first year they did it, the winning school, the custodian was Chris Cantor. He knew the name of every single child and administrator and teacher in the school. He had such success with the products that he wasn't spending all of his time cleaning. He was doing these special workshops over lunch with kids where they were learning teamwork. They were building birdhouses and making benches and working with tools and learning leadership. He went beyond just the day-to-day because he was able to maximize and, and make these huge contributions. So he was selected. He won. There was a wonderful celebration. He gets money. Tenant goes and calls each of the schools that nominated the janitors to thank them for participating. And before this contest, none of these administrators could have told you where their cleaning supplies were bought from. They had no idea. And as a result of those calls, 30% of them turned to sales. The next year, the nominations doubled and it's continued to grow. And so now a tenant has not only created goodwill because they're sponsoring this contest, they have all of these stories of people that use their products, which is even better than you trying to promote and say how your product can be beneficial. The key to finding an idea for a story, especially when you think it's boring, is to dig into the details because there are always people, there are always little stories like this that are going to be really compelling. When you feel like there isn't a story to tell, it's because you have too blank of a sheet of paper and you need to put some constraints in place and ask yourself questions to dig into, you know, who is using this? What are their challenges? What could this look like? Because there's always a story there. Is there a framework that you use then to put that structure in place when you've got almost too much freedom to think about what that story might be and you need to put some of that parameter in place? Can I do a little experiment with you? Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to ask you two questions. One is going to be intentionally vague and just do your best to answer it. Okay, Okay, first one, vague question. Tell us about your childhood. What was your childhood like? Very lovely, loving, fun, outdoorsy. 
adventurous. Perfect. We'll pause there. Second question. What sound or smell reminds you of home? I don't know. I'll jump in and I can sure. yeah. um, Cherries. It's not so much home. It's my grandmother's. She's passed away now, but it was my grandmother's back garden in the summer. She had a big cherry tree and all of the cousins would come together in the summer. And there was five or six of us. And because we were just small kids and clearly back in those days, health and safety wasn't really an issue for a grandmother. She would push us up the tree and we'd all have, we'd all put cherries in little buckets and then we'd end up having, you know, one in the bucket, one in my mouth, one in the bucket, one in my mouth. So yeah. And that kind of smell, that summery sort of, that reminds me of, I wouldn't say it's home, but it's a, it's a home home. Very vivid. So what happens when I ask these two questions is something very similar to what happens here. The question of tell me about your childhood makes your brain go blank because what part of childhood? Childhood can span 18, 20 years for many 40 years. And so your brain says, where do you want me? Like what story? There are so many. I don't know. That's too hard a question. But when we start to narrow it and we say sound or smell, it then tells your brain, okay, go into these files and what comes Comes up. So when you start to apply constraints, that's when ideas emerge. So what you want to do is think about first, have a place to capture your ideas because you want to spend your time coming up with ideas, not trying to remember them. So whether that's a notebook, an app, a spreadsheet, whatever works for you, have a place. And then you want to sit down and work through different ideas around your personal experiences. Think about what sounds and smell remind you of home. What is something you should have gotten rid of, but you just can't? Maybe you have a fun story about your first concert. You want to start mining your own experiences for these ideas. Go into your professional world. There are endless stories and mistakes made, things you learned from leaders, advice you got. Think about things you really enjoy experiencing in the world, whether it's a podcast or reading an article, or maybe there's a documentary that you saw. What you're looking for is the things that you feel energy toward because stories are an exchange of energy. And so when there's something that is intriguing to you, you want to put it on the list without worrying about when you're going to use it or who you're going to tell it to. The list is going to help you get over that blank sheet of paper when it's time to tell a story, because you're going to sit down and you have already worked through the audience and what you want them to know, think, feel, or do. So let's say we want to, we want to help our audience navigate change. You're going to start to go through this list of ideas that you have and ask yourself, which one of these will help me make the point that I want around navigating change? Often it's nothing on the list, but the act of having the list and going down it prompts an idea that you hadn't thought of and it triggers something meaningful. So we can do this in companies by capturing customer stories and different events like Tenant did. Telling stories that have nothing to do with the topic at hand can be even more compelling sometimes because the idea, you connect to the emotion of it and you land on the takeaway. So Create the habit of noticing and capturing these ideas because that then allows for you to come up with something as opposed to sitting there in the moment thinking, what story am I going to tell? That's absolutely amazing. We are out of time. Annoyingly, we're out of time because I had so many more questions, but maybe we're just going to have to drag you on for another podcast so I can ask all of my other questions, Karen. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for sharing information. Where can people find the book? Let's talk about that for just a second. Yeah, best place is my website, which is my name, K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. The book is everywhere books are sold and you can find links to it there. 
Lovely. Absolutely fantastic. Gemma, thank you very much for being my co-host today. Thank you. And uh, Karen, been absolutely fantastic getting a bit of your insight around storytelling. Really, really loved some of the examples. The bit as well that I thought for me is my kind of takeaway is that start with understanding your audience. That's the big thing that I keep resonating in my brain. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. You can, of course, get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can access our back catalogue of podcasts on the Lace Partners website, which is www.lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast. You can also see the various different white papers, webinars that we run, events that we've got going on, and also our weekly blog and content that we push out. So on behalf of myself, Gemma and Karen, thank you very much for listening. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive Podcast. Bye-bye.